For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Her Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. Over in Iran, there is big doings. There's lots of protests. There's lots of noise. The Western media got a taste of it because uh, the Iranian president is in New York for meetings at the UN. And CNN international anchor Christine Amanpour refused to interview with him without a head covering. and He backed off of it. Why does that matter? Here's why. Because these protests are very much over how women are treated by that dictatorial, bloodthirsty, and frankly, evil regime. The Iranian people have long suffered under them. Now they've had enough. From CNN, the father of an Iranian woman who died in police custody last week has accused authorities of lying about her death as protests raged nationwide despite the government's attempt to curb dissent with an internet blackout. Amaj Amini, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing any of the names in this piece. There's going to be a couple in here that just are not hillbilly friendly. Whose daughter, Masha, died after being arrested in Tehran by the morality police. Quick pause here for those of you that don't know. Yes, there's a morality piece. They, police, they literally go around, tell women what they can and can't wear. They will even beat them. This is on video. This isn't my opinion. This isn't conjecture. You can pull it up. They go around. They tell women what to do. If they don't do it, they beat them. They arrest them. They haul them off just for things like not having the proper head covering. It's evil. It's wicked. It's wrong. I don't care what their justification is. Back to the CNN piece. Said doctors had refused to let him see his doctor after her death. Iranian officials had claimed she died after suffering a heart attack. That's in quotes because they don't believe it. And falling into a coma. But her family has said she had no pre-existing heart condition, according to the Imidad News Agency. An Iranian pro-reform media outlet, public skepticism over the official's account has sparked outpouring of anger. They're lying. They're telling lies. Everything's a lie. No matter how much I've begged, they won't let me see my daughter, he told BBC Persia. On Wednesday, when he viewed his daughter's body, body leading up to her funeral, it was entirely wrapped except for her feet and face, though he noticed bruising on her feet. I have no idea what they did to her, he said. CCTV footage released by Iran State Media showed Masha Amini collapsing at a quote-unquote re-education center where she was taken by the morality piece, police to receive guidance on her attire. Hell with all these people. Back to CNN, her death has sparked an outpouring of anger that has snowballed to include issues ranging from freedoms in the Islamic Republic to the crippling economic impacts of sanctions. Protests and deadly clashes with police have broken out in towns and cities across Iran, despite authorities' attempt to curb the spread of demonstrations through Internet blackouts. Those mobile networks have been largely shut down and access to Instagram and WhatsApp have been restricted. Internet watchdog NetBlock said on Wednesday evening, a second national-scale loss of connectivity in Iran was reported on Thursday. There was a near-total disruption in Internet access in parts of Iran's western Kurdistan pro province, 
from Monday evening and regional blackouts in other parts. This comes after Iran's Minister of Communications warned that there could be internet disruptions for security purposes and discussions related to recent events. Those are in quotes. According to the country's semi-official ISNA news agency, last time Iran saw such a severe blackout was when authorities tried to contain mass protests in late 2019 after a fuel price spike of 300%. At the time, Iran was taken almost entirely offline, which Oracle had called the world's largest internet shutdown ever observed there. This week, several Iranian state government websites, including the official sites of the president of the Iran Central Bank, were also offline the hacker collective anonymous claiming responsibility as at least eight people including a teenager have been killed in recent days due to the clashes at the protests according to the human rights group amnesty international at least four of those eight died from injuries sustained from security forces firing metal pellets at close range four others were shot by security forces iranian security forces unlawfully and repeatedly firing metal pellets directly at protesters riot police were mobilized to dispense protesters Wednesday night in the capital of Tehran and were seen arresting people, according to eyewitnesses who don't want to be named for obvious safety reasons. The riot police deployed tear gas with heavy-handed crackdown. Another eyewitness in the city's eastern district said the protests heard shouting, death to the dictator, and the supreme leader, quote, I will kill who killed my sister, referring to Amini. Videos of the protests show people destroying posters of the supreme leader and women burning their hijabs and cutting off their hair in symbolic show of defiance. This is bravery, folks. This is not performative protest. These people are brave. CNN has reached out to the police and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard who joined the riot police for comment. They said they called on the judiciary to identify people responsible for spreading, quote-unquote, rumors. Rumors. The Iran Revolutionary Guard accused the protesters of rioting and vandalism. Meanwhile, the FARS official news agency reported that two members of Iran Baji paramilitary organization, a volunteer paramilitary group connected to the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard, were killed during protests. Rioters stabbed one of them in Tabriz. Uh, Fars reported the state-run Alamein said that the other Bazim member was killed in the Khwazim province. I'm saying these wrongs. I'm sure. I'm sorry. We're doing our best. Propaganda-style video entitled... When the Bajim Enters was published by FARS, allegedly showing the members on motorcycles clearing barricades and detaining men on the street. The video does not specify location or date. International activists and leaders have also expressed concern that the protests and the alleged police violence. Let's be clear here. The Iranian regime that has dominated that country since the revolution is not a good group of people. They have brutalized women. They have brutalized minority groups. They have brutalized people like the LGBT community and others. They are not good. They are evil. They are wicked. And Iran will be much better when they are gone and no longer oppressing that country. That they killed this woman in custody to re-educate her on her outward appearance just shows how deep that rot goes. I don't care what their justifications are. I don't care why they think they should do that. It's wrong. And I will stand with any of the Iranian people that rise up to overthrow such wickedness. This usually gets put down. We've seen these kind of protests before. Maybe, just maybe, the Iranians can get control of their country back from these theocratic madmen once and for all. I long and pray for that day. I hope it comes with a minimum of violence. I'm skeptical that it can. Violent people will only go away violently, usually. And I fear that that is where Iran is inevitably heading, whether it's this protest or the next protest. At some point, this evil will fall, 
It's just a matter of when. More heard tell right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, let's talk about government accountability, something we talk about a lot. We talk about personal accountability. We talk about government accountability. This looks pretty egregious, and it's getting worse by the minute. Uh, this is from NPR. Let's go down to Mississippi, somewhere I've been a few times. Jackson, Mississippi. Dan Smyra, wherever you are. How you doing, buddy? First roommate in the military. It was from right outside Jackson in Clare Branch. Uh, a former director of Mississippi's welfare agency pleaded guilty Thursday to new federal charges and a conspiracy to misspend tens of millions of dollars that were intended to help needy families of one of the poorest states in the U.S., part of the largest public corruption case in the state's history. John Davis appeared in federal court to plead guilty to one count of conspiracy and one count of fraud against the government. During the hearing, U.S. District Judge Car Carlton Reeves asked several questions. Whether Davis understood the charges to which he was pleading guilty, he answered yes, sir, each time. Reeves set sentencing for February 2nd. Davis remains remains free on bond. <sighs> we need to do a deep dive on bond and bail reform at some point. And the judge said he hopes Davis makes better decisions from now on. Well, isn't that just swell? I look forward to hoping that this portion of your life is behind you. Well, that's awful nice of the judge. <sighs> Anyway, Davis was indicted on state charges in February 2020. He was re-indicted this spring on state charges that he participated in misusing welfare money, including using some to send a former pro wrestler to a luxury drug rehab facility. The state charges are being dropped in exchange for Davis agreeing to plead guilty to federal charges and to testify against others in the case. According to the state agreement filed Wednesday, the state court document said Davis had agreed to plead guilty to five counts of conspiracy and 13 counts of fraud in federal court. He pled guilty to one count of each. Attorneys in the federal court did not mention multiple charges or explain the contents of the state court document, which is now, you know, mute. The federal charges were handed down on September 15th, but remained sealed until Wednesday. Federal court registered show Davis appeared before the magistrate judge. He was the executive director of the Mississippi Department of Health and Human Resources, excuse me, the Mississippi Department of Human Sor Services, the Mississippi Department of Human Services from February 2016 to July 2019. He was appointed by then-Governor Phil Bryan, a Republican governor, and the charges are he conspired with four other people who are not named. However, we found out now the state court filing from September the 12th, an attorney from one of the news organizations listed text messages between retired NFL quarterback Brett Favre, a Mississippi native, and Nancy New, between Favre and Brian and between Brian and New, the messages showed discussions about millions of dollars in welfare money being directed to a pet project of Favre's. 
a volleyball facility being built at the University of Southern Mississippi. Favre, Brian, and New all attended the university, and Favre's daughter started playing volleyball there in 2017. Favre and Brian have not been charged in the welfare misspending case, although there is some evidence in these text messages that he knew something untoward was going. So the Favre part of this is going to get a lot of attention, uh, maybe not enough attention by some people's measurements, but what this man did is so egregiously wrong, and this is why government must be accountable all the time in all things, small and large. Things like how the welfare system is administered doesn't get a lot of local press coverage because local press is darn near almost dead. This is why it's important to have beat reporters that know this stuff and can dig into it. I'm glad this guy got caught. But as we've seen in lots of things like welfare funds nationwide, like we're seeing in more and more cases from the outpouring of money from the COVID thing, anywhere there's a big bunch of money and unaccountable government, there's going to be corruption. There's going to be theft and there's going to be people who ought to be getting this money to help them getting in the middle with them as the rope and a tug of war between a press and a public that should be demanding accountability and government officials who are dead set on never being accountable for anything. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, she was literally the very first guest we ever had when we went to the Daily Radio program. She was the first guest we ever had. Been way too long. We've got her back. Jenny Coulter, how are you, my friend? I'm doing just great, and I am so flattered that you actually wanted me to come back. Ah, nonsense. You're one of the best. Uh, she does election stuff. She does it inside and out. She's also just a really, really talented writer and a really good friend, and we're always happy to talk to you. Um, unfortunately it's that time of the year again, some more elections. <laughs> Did we learn anything? I know we talked about things like election security. I know that got abused in a lot of ways. I know it didn't get talked about in some ways that it needed to 2020 to now, and we're getting ready to go to the boost. You know, early voting will be starting here real soon in a lot of places. Have we actually learned anything? Do you think? Okay. From a strictly technical perspective? Yes. One of the things that um, CISA, which is the Center for um, Internet Security, et cetera, of the federal agency, they actually gave the election community a considerable amount of kudos because there have been far fewer data breaches and ransomware attacks than there were even two or three years ago. So the election community has taken their um, security suggestions to heart. A lot of places now actually have a cybersecurity or at least a better IT department. And I think things are moving in the right direction. Are they perfect? No, but they're getting better. Now, when you say better, though, like you just said, there's layers to this. There's the security part of it. There's the technical side of it. There's how the election, you know, people think elections, you really know the nuts and bolts of how it gets done, how it's managed, how it's handled. That's not the part that people talk about because they just want to talk about the results and that part of it. You've mentioned, you know, on the ground, the nuts and bolts stuff that's going really well. 
how about that discourse side of it? Is there things that we need to do to talk about it more? Because like you said, you know, the things are better. You don't really hear that in the media or social media all that much. So should we do a little bit better job with the discourse surrounding elections, do you think then? I certainly don't think that would hurt. Now, one of the things I said security was getting better from a technical perspective. From a chain of custody perspective, there have been multiple uh, high-profile incidents that shall be that shall live in infamy. And there were pieces of equipment, systems that were accessed without proper authorization. And in some cases, nobody knew where that equipment went for days, weeks, or in some cases, months. That's a problem because you have to be able to trust the machines or the systems you're using. And if it's just been out of sight for six months and you get it back, I don't care how many inspections you do. I'm still going to be paranoid that there's a rootkit in there somewhere. Yeah. And talk about that for a minute, um, because this is like if you watch a crime show, they talk about chain of custody for evidence. They've got to know where these machines are at all the times. They got to know everybody that does and doesn't touch them. I know we've got investigations going on in Georgia now where we've got it on video. People basically tampering with stuff. We have things in other places, Arizona, where they talk about these machines, people that aren't authorized to touch them on a practical level without getting into all the, you know, the nomenclature of it. Why is it such a big deal, that chain of custody? Because like you said, you don't trust it. But what would really happen if people, and I'm not talking about the cranks and the crazies, if most of the voters started questioning where their votes were going because the machines had been tampered with? The damage it does to voter confidence is incalculable. And again, you don't know if you don't know what has happened to your machine, if you do not know where it is at all times, or at least how well this how well it's been secured, it's going to cause doubt in the entire process. And that's a justifiable doubt. And it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter whether or not you found something. That's great if you did. However, the way that certain people went about it with the breaks in the chain of custody and the complete and total lack of legal accountability and responsibility for the equipment, that's what the problem is. Yeah. And the key word there was justified. So let's just go right there. What is a justified concern? Because we have the the crazy theorist. We have the people who ha know nothing about elections doing election audits, which we'll get into that in a minute. But what would be a justifiable concern, not just, oh, I saw somebody move a box on a grainy video. What would be something that folks would need to look into? Any form of unauthorized access or access after hours, anybody who does not have access privileges suddenly accessing something. Um, the principle of least privilege is certainly a very important part of elections. There's certain, you know, you need some things like separation of duties. You don't want one or two people in total control of the machines without an extremely well-defined chain of custody document. Yeah, and the part of this too, Jenny called to join us, the thing that really um, confuses folks too is there's only so many election experts. So how many people, when you're doing this at a polling place or between polling places where these machines get you know collected either by the state or the local authorities or whoever's watching them, Talk to people about this part of it. How many people are actually professional election people? How many are like state and local officials? And how many people are just volunteers that are doing it like a poll worker, somebody who's tasked to do this, who's just a volunteer? Um, there's about um, 10,000 unique election jurisdictions. So let's say about 10,000 election officials and then 
um, let's ballpark maybe 30, 40,000 for staff. The remainder would be volunteer poll workers. And sometimes they're state or county employees. You know, if you're if you're short on poll workers, you can always commandeer people from the local government. So that would be about, oh, maybe 1.1, 1.2 million. So the vast majority of election security, at least on election day, falls to the poll workers who are tasked with conducting the election. But that that number is just blowing me away because we're talking about 154 million people voted in 2020. And there's about 260 odd million who are registered to vote. You know, so, you know, my math's not super great, but that's, you know, low 60s on vote on turnout. And you're talking about 10,000 people really controlling the results of all of that. That, that. That's a staggering ratio to people to hear the numbers that way. But that's how this works. Well, I mean, the poll worker to voter ratios, it's I always like to point out there are a lot more of you than there are of us. We apologize for the line. But if you were at a restaurant or Disneyland, you wouldn't be complaining. It's only when you're it's only on Election Day that this suddenly becomes an issue. Yeah, and Disney World has 80,000 people just for comparison there. Uh -huh. And their own police department. And their own police department and their own fire department and their own production staff and their own everything else. Is is that something that should be looked at? Is the volunteer system holding up or is it antiquated? Is the way we're using volunteers and kind of a slapdash different way of getting poll workers? We know the folks are dedicated. We know they do good work when they do it. Is it just getting too big for them? That's kind of the accusation that gets thrown at them is like, look, you know, we're, we're creeping up on 160 million voters. We're going to need more than, you know, 10,000 volunteers here. What, what do we say to folks that's like this whole thing, we need a different system or do we just need a better system? Elections would collapse without the extremely dedicated service of American poll workers. I mean, literally. Without them, there are no elections simply because there are not enough qualified people to go around. And a good poll worker, quite honestly, there are some who are better than a lot of election officials. So as long as you retain your good election workers, I mean, things can actually, things go pretty well. I mean, certainly everybody ages and certain processes that might have been in vogue one year aren't from one year to another. But overall, I think most poll workers do a good job. I do wish that there were some form of accountability for when there's a mistake that's made that is so egregious it makes the six o'clock news, but not necessarily in a punitive manner, just a, look, you did this, you messed up, please don't ever do this again, and let's move forward. And that brings it to us is like, okay, you said these things need accountability. We're big on accountability. Who is holding these things accountable? Not internet sleuths watching the grainy video, not not that stuff, but in a good system where things are running well, where the mistakes are just honest mistakes. Somebody just, you know, you know, stuff happens. These things are complicated. There's a lot of people, chaos, things happen. There's processes for these things happen. Talk about the accountability that is built into the system when it's running correctly, because there is layers and there is ways to fix mistakes and there is a right and wrong way to do this stuff, right? Yes, there is. And ultimately, accountability stops with the voters. I am 100% accountable to the voters of my jurisdiction. And if I mess up, 
I may have something I did may have caused a problem for them. That's not okay. So I try to make sure that every time I'm processing voter that I have exhausted every possible avenue of being able to help them. And believe me, that has involved some very, very long phone calls. I think that for the most part, poll workers do a great job. I think there are some, let's face it, insider threats are a thing and they've becoming, they're bec it's becoming more and more of an issue, I think, particularly this year. So I think that you, especially for senior poll workers, you want to keep an eye on who your people are and you want to make sure that they're not accessing anything that they shouldn't be accessing and that they are following all the rules in accordance with the laws of the jurisdiction. Yeah, Jenny Coulter joining us. We're going to take a quick break, come back. We're going to talk about that insider stuff because she doesn't just talk about this as an analysis. She has spent many, many a day in the polls, running the polls. She's going to take us inside of it, how that works, and some of her concerns for these upcoming midterm elections in 2022. One of our great friends, and we're going to continue with her right after this. More election stuff with her as her tell continues. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Our good friend, Jenny Coulter. Love having her. An election expert, both theory, both advocating. She also actually runs polling places, so she knows how these things work. Let's go there. Take us inside the polling place, because like you said, the insider part of this is becoming a problem. We see the news headline in Georgia now where they're investigating, where they've, you know, they got video now where election officials let people into the rooms where they shouldn't have been and people were able to fiddle with things. We just said it. There's a volunteer process here. They kind of take who they can get to try to run these things. There is untoward folks that are looking to abuse and take advantage of that, isn't there? I think so. But one of the things that with a lot of the um, insider threats, they don't believe that they're the threat. And for the most part, they did their jobs pretty well. It's just something caused them to lose faith in the process. and they may or may not have been talking to people and somebody said something that they had enough working knowledge of to be able to go, wait, that makes sense. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're not, but that's kind of beside the point. They believe they're actually trying to save democracy. They're not openly trying to subvert it, even if that's what their actions wind up doing. Yeah, but here's the problem. The rules are the rules. Yes, they uh, are. So <laughs> how do you hand, you know, you're a poll, you're in charge of a polling place and you wind up with one of these people who, you know, maybe they legitimately think there's an issue where there isn't one. You've still got rules to enforce. Um, this is kind of this is kind of unprecedented for a lot of people because they've just never occurred to them that there would be a problem in a polling place like this. What do you do? You're in charge of the poll worker. You run into one of these individuals. They start demanding to see something or they want an accounting or something or they get on their cell phone with somebody, whatever the case may be that we've seen. How do you handle it? Well, there's different pr procedures for a poll worker versus a poll watcher. Poll watchers are election observers, in some cases um, appointed by political parties. 
um, poll workers are the ones that are actually doing the grunt work. So with a poll watcher, you have to establish the rules up front and you have to, I mean, in my case, I do kind of establish dominance because the first thing I do is I ask to see their ID. And they always kind of look at me and I go, well, if my voters have to show an ID to vote and I had to show an ID to get appointed as a poll worker, then I don't think it's an unreasonable request. That usually puts them at ease somewhat because it, I'm somebody to be, to be taken seriously. And then you have to lay out the rules ahead of time. You are not allowed to speak with the voters. If you have any questions, please direct them to me. And if you're gonna talk on your cell phone, please take the call outside. And if you keep the rules simple, generally people follow. And if they have a question, if it's a good faith question and you can answer it accurately, answer it. Treating everything like it's this shadowy secret cabal does not do anybody any favors. Now with poll workers, it's a little different because again, they are beholden to a set of laws which poll watchers are not. So you again have to establish your dominance and you have to make sure that everybody is clear on the rules, both at training and at the little when you're swearing everybody into the oath right before the polling place opens, you know, you always do reminders. And if you see something going on that's, you know, you're kind of like, oh, wait, what are they doing? You very gently take them by the side and you go, look, I know you, I appreciate everything you're trying to do. However, what you're doing is going to cause a problem and it could potentially cost either the voter their vote or it could make us look really bad in front of an observer. Neither one of those is something we want to be dealing with. We do not want to be on the six o'clock news. So I'm going to politely ask if you would not do that in the future. Now that's in the polling places. People are concerned now because there are people who, um, whatever terminology you want to use, uh, conspiracy theorists, election deniers, whatever you want to say, there are people running who think that 2020 election was not on the up and up, that wasn't fair that are now running for things like secretary of state positions, like other positions, because every state's a little different positions where they're going to have a say over the election process. How concerned should people be when you get somebody who uses that kind of rhetoric and they get in a position of elected power where they're over charge of these systems, either at a state level, local level, whatever the case may be. Is it a concern? How much damage can they really do and how much of it is just rhetoric and the system can kind of bulwark itself? Some of it depends heavily on the, the surrounding power structures. Now, in Secretary of State, some Secretaries of State have, you know, like in the movie Aladdin, phenomenal cosmic power. Others, it's more of a ceremonial role. Just It just depends. But a Secretary of State that does not fulfill their duties can do an extreme amount of damage. I've seen it, I'm from California. We had one period in the mid aughts where we were going through secretaries of state like the band in the movie, This Is Spinal Tap was going through drummers. I'm not kidding. So I've seen what a ineffective secretary of state can do. And the thing is, it's not an easy job. It's You're not just overseeing elections. You have to do things like, I mean, you're in charge of the archives, the state seal, business licensing. There's a lot of different duties that you're expected to perform. Elections are almost ancillary in a lot of ways. And if you cannot handle those other duties, you're not generally going to last too long as Secretary of State. Yeah. And we've seen things like the situation in Arizona. Um, now we've got this investigation going on in Georgia. How much does it overshadow 
and upcoming, you know, we're still talking about the 2020 election now, and here we are getting ready to start doing voting in 2022. So, you know, two years worth of this now. And I imagine we're probably going to have some kind of mess out of this one way or the other that we either can or cannot predict. Why, why is there just some folks that no matter what they're, I get that you lose and you don't want to lose in this sort of thing, but the integrity of our election is just way too important to give into these folks, isn't it? Some people, no matter what, are just going to be hell bent on playing archaeologist. There is nothing you're going to be able to do about those people. You, I mean, the best thing, honestly, to do is smile, nod, and be like, thank you very much. I will take this under advisement, but we have an election coming up now. So what did we learn from the prior election that we can apply to this one coming up in the future? The thing about that is I think that's a great way that you just put it. They want to be an archaeologist. You know, it, it's like the conspiracy. Theory. They always want to know the one thing nobody else knows, and they're going to figure it out thing. Have we lost the communal aspect to elections here? I know it's adversarial. I know we want our team to win over the other team. I get all that part, too. Is there just a civic level of this? And you're in the polling places, so, you know, you tell me. But I, by far, I've had very positive experiences in my polling place with one exception. Um I think people just go there to do their civic duty. I I know that's, you know, cliche, but I really, I, I still see that a lot when I go to a polling place. Do you see that? Or do you see more and more divide when you see the, just the poll, people coming to the polls, filing by you in the polling place? The vast majority of the voters I encounter really do vote because it is a social aspect. It's like government is one of those, it's just another word for one of those things we do together. That's the best way I can consider elections. I mean, it really is because, you know, you're voting with your friends, your neighbors, your family. It really becomes an event. Now, I don't get to partake in this. I have to vote by mail because obviously I'm at the polling place, but, you know, whatever. So I think that in certain areas, yes, voting does have more of a communal aspect. There are some areas where it's not. And I think sometimes those areas or places where there's been a really drastic change in a very short amount of time. I think that that's where things start to start simmering under the surface and eventually, hopefully not, but they do sometimes boil over. Yeah. And I mentioned, I wanted to ask you about this because we've talked about it before. Um, you were gracious enough to have me join you on a call about this. The one bad experience I've had at the polling in the last was because I had an accessibility issue. Um, I had just gotten out of the hospital I needed to use the ADA station because I needed it. It was the one place where you can sit down and vote. You don't stand and vote for that. Um, the poll worker just wasn't using their brain. And they're like, you can't take a bag. And I finally pulled my shirt up. I'm like, it's a J tube. It's surgically attached. I cannot put this down, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But I bring that up because of this. There was a lot of things that was changed because of COVID and people can have their opinions about a lot of them. But one thing that it did do was we opened up a lot of accessibility to people that had not previously been there because now everybody's got an accessibility issue one way or the other, right? How important is it for us to take good lessons from the COVID voting, which was chaotic, we know, but it also had some innovation to it and also had some accessibility stuff that kind of pushed the ball forward on things that had been problems anyway. Um, I know people have strong opinions on things like voting by mail and things like this, but we've seen it now. How much of that is actually also getting more people in, involved in the voting process and good parts that we need to keep from what we learned from that time period? 
Bottom line, voter turnout is up, and it doesn't matter if you are affiliated politically or unaffiliated. People are voting. I think that's a good thing. I think that there were certain innovations that got introduced during that time period that, I mean, seriously, elections were done a huge solid. And I think one of the other things that it threw into sharp relief was the need for funding for elections offices. There's been, obviously, certain camps have been complaining that um, private enterprises were providing funds to election offices. And although, again, I realize that that can be perceived as a conflict of interest, I also realize election offices are horribly, horribly neglected when it comes to funding. And that should have been a wake-up call that maybe there needed to be a little bit more money in the general fund that went to election offices. Yeah, and for folks that don't know, because again, you've been a local poll worker for a long, long time. The actual setup, the teardown, because usually these are in, you know, schools or churches or a municipal building or places like this. Um, so it's not an overhead thing. But for folks that just don't know, how do an actual election, how does it get funded? How does the volunteers get set up? Just the mechanics of that. Just take people inside that for a minute. Because a lot of people just show up and vote and they know there's volunteers and they know, well, somebody had to prep the room, for lack of a better term. But explain that process for folks a little bit. Well, after the election is called and you go through the candidate, um, the signature verification petition processes and filing deadlines, the election office has the unenviable task of finding polling places. Nobody ever wants to be a polling place. You do not get compensated the amount that you can usually charge people. And it is basically like seating control of your facility to a very elaborate destination wedding with anywhere from oh, 600 to 5,000 people. And you have no control over anything and you have to, and you're not getting paid what you're, you're not getting paid what you would normally charge somebody. And you can't even access the facility because it has to be locked down because of election equipment. So I can, so finding polling places, there's a lot of places that we loved having as facilities and they just did not want us back. Yeah, my uh, polling place right now is actually the rec center that's attached to the elementary school. And it's it's basically perfect because they kind of design it for things like that. So that works out well. But especially when you get into uh, in cities, in rural places where there's only so many buildings that you can run a couple hundred people through for a day. This is actually a really big issue that doesn't get talked about enough is like, look, there's only so, so many ways you can do an election. And getting a building is kind of the base model of like, well, none of this other stuff works if we don't have a proper polling place. And then people don't really talk about it. No, and everybody always thinks because the polling places got closed, it was some nefarious pot. 99% of the time, it's just because they couldn't secure the facility. Yeah, secure the facility, manning the facility. There's a lot of nuts and bolts to this. We talked about the lessons learned in the last few years. We know there's going to be untoward actors that are going to claim whatever they're going to claim about this one coming up. Give people one or two things to look for in the news coverage of the elections, not the results, not the horse race stuff, but how it's actually going. 
um, if a if a result gets delayed, if something happens, what's some of the things you watch for in the headlines to know like, hey, there may be a problem here besides just counting votes as we go into the election season? First thing I look for is ballots behaving badly, aka ballots that have some sort of readability issue or errors, because a poorly printed ballot or a poorly designed ballot, well, you know what a hanging chat is. So ballot so ballot issues are the first thing I'm going to be looking for. The second is if there were any technical issues or you had problems where the facility lost power. That happened to me in the last election. It was fun. There are poll workers who were did not receive the, the amount of training they needed and had issues with equipment operation. I'm definitely going to be looking out for incidents involving potential improper access or if so, or somebody calling trying to call in a threat. I do worry about the safety of everybody. I mean, for the most part, everybody's really nice, but you, you, I've, I've had my share of people who were a little um, vehement, I, should, I suppose. And if there's a delay with the results, usually it's because one of the polling places had to go over time because something wasn't adding up or they couldn't find something. And obviously, you can't release results until everybody's brought them in. Yeah, Jenny called it. All right, this is a serious topic, but I want to end on a bit of a lighter note. I voted in my primary. And when I went to vote, I not only did not get my I voted sticker, which angered <sighs> me greatly. They gave us you voted pins. Nice. And they were the I voted pins. I voted 2021. So not only did I not get my sticker, I wound up with a pin from the previous election. Validate my anger because this very much upset me. Dude, you wound up with a pin. I would not complain. I am an election pin freak. It's a pin from 10 to 20. It, I've got two now from 2021. At least give me a 2022 pin. Uh, you know, but it was bad enough. I didn't get my, I, I, just, I just want my sticker. Just give me my sticker. You know what? There's actually an organization called the Voter Sticker Project. And you might be able to tweet them and they can they can hook you up. All right, I had to do that. But I, I was like, what do you mean I don't get a sticker? And they're like, no, nah, here's a pen. I'm like, what is this pen stuff? But that goes to the, you know, there really is a civic ritual element to this. And I know it's silly about the stickers and people put them on their social media and people even make fun of people for putting them on their social media. But you get you get used to wanting stuff. See, she's got hers right. I'm surprised you don't have a tattooed on, frankly. But um, yeah, I probably gave you an idea. But but that, you know, as silly as that is, that that goes to show that this is a civic ritual and there is a connection to this stuff. And it is important to people, little things like that. Oh, running out of stickers, that can literally cause a riot in the polling place. It's I mean, people get really testy. It's almost as bad as when Walmart uh, runs out of bags at the cash register. But we'll talk about that story some other time where I was work I was working for a shipping company. They're like, we need you to bring a pallet of bags from one Walmart to another. And we're like, we don't do that. And they're like. Well, if you don't, there's going to be a riot. Like literally, people were just throwing stuff in shopping carts and running out the doors. Like we got to get bags. So no stickers at the polling places is a bad thing. If you go to a polling place, make sure you get a poll worker as good as our friend Jenny Coulter. We love having you on to explain these things so good that even I can understand them. Uh, we love following you on social media. That's how we got to be friends. Let folks know where they can follow you and what you got going on. Now that you got the swanky set up that you've got going on behind you there. Let folks know what you've got going on until we get you back again. All right. So on Twitter, if you want to follow me personally, you can follow me at election babe, 
or if you want to follow me on my official accounts, because I am the Senior Director of Stakeholder Relations for the OSET Institute and the Trust the Vote Project. And you can follow me there at Trust the Vote, and you can follow me at OSET, O-S-E-T. Yeah, and they've been doing really good work. Very interesting stuff, innovative stuff, uh, things that are coming up. Um, things like accessibility issues and other things. Make sure you're checking out their work. My friend, uh, you are our first guest. You are our first guest when we switch to the daily radio show. We're going to keep having you back because you do that good work, and we always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Well, I had a wonderful time, Andrew, and thank you so much for having me. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. And may the magical ballot fairies be with you. <laughs> always, because it doesn't get done without them. <laughs> Talk soon. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right. It's been a heavy week of topics here on Herd Tell. We've had to cover some really touchy issues, some in-depth issues, some things that, frankly, is kind of icky to talk about. Let's end the week on a happy note. Uh, Tim Tebow won the Heisman Trophy. For those of you that don't know, that's the highest award in college football. It's very prestigious. And he won it. He was a great college football player. His pro career didn't match that level, but he's also known as being a pretty good guy doing lots of charity work. Turns out, he doesn't actually have his Heisman Trophy because he loans it out for a fee. Uh, let's go to uh, this ChristianHeadlines.com piece. This is very interesting. Uh, trophies and awards typically sit on shelves and collect dust or are boxed away for no one to see. By the way, the Heisman Trophy is a huge, heavy trophy. It's, this is not you know, a paperweight. This thing's big. But now in the world of Tim Tebow, who won the 2007 Heisman Trophy as college football's most outstanding player, Every year, every six months, I used to auction it off for a charity for people to keep in their homes, Tebow told Dan Patrick of the Dan Patrick Show. He hasn't actually had it in eight years, and he's been auctioning it off to charity, most notably to country stars like Luke Bryan and to Kathy Gifford. Um, all told, more than $1 million has been raised over the years. Country singer Luke Bryan was the most recent temporary owner. Kathy Lee Gifford was the first one. Tebow, who now works for ESPN as an analysis, says he wants his Heisman Trophy to be used for good. Quote, it's such a cool award and it's so prestigious that very few people have ever had the chance to be around it. He said, referencing the trophy's ability to garner a high bid at auction. I'm so grateful. Why have it in your garage when you can have it in someone else's living room? And now a lot of kids are being helped with it. My goal is that it could be the most impactful Heisman one day, not by sitting on a shelf, but by being on a lot of other shelves, making an impact on a lot of kids' lives. Tebow won the award as a sophomore. He was the first to do that until then had been juniors and seniors and asked how he developed a heart for philanthropy. He pointed to his own faith and he said, I'm just so grateful for that perspective because I'm someone who can totally lean towards win at all costs, do whatever you can to drive and compete and win. My parents have just been so impactful with purpose-driven led heroes in my life. 
these trophies and these championships and everything, they're awesome, but ultimately they're not what's important. There's so many things that are more important. We'll link to that full piece. Cool idea, auctioning the trophy off for a lot of money. Uh, one of my favorite things that I see him do once a year, uh, he throws a prom for special needs children and kids like Down syndrome, autistic, folks like that. They get to go to a dance. He throws a big deal. He always takes one of them. He personally escorts, makes a big deal of it. That's really cool stuff. Whatever you think of Tim Tebow. Wasn't much of an NFL quarterback. Really good dude doing good work. That's a good note to end her tell for this week. We hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street around the world. And however you're watching or listening on the YouTube page, on any of the podcasting platforms, our radio partner, Big Talker FM, their app, their Facebook page, happy to be with them. However you're watching or listening, if you could leave a comment and a rating, we'd love for you to do that. Make sure you're subscribing. It is always free. Everything we do is free here. And if you would do us a real good solid, share us on your social media other than in-house advertising in our own social media. That's the only advertising we have. We had the biggest single day of the podcast side downloads by a factor of three this week. That's all because of you. We had the biggest week we've ever had. That's all because of you. We don't pay advertising. It's just doing good work, hoping folks find it. You're finding it. As long as you're listening and watching, we'll keep doing it. So a great big thank you to each and every one of you, wherever you are, across the street or around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Have a great weekend. Don't forget about twice on Sunday, the Hertel podcast this week on economics. You're going to love it. Don't miss it. Talk to you soon for more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.